Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, the podcast where we discuss your questions about Elixir application design and the state of the ecosystem. My name is Desmond Bowie, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris Bell. Hey, Desmond. Hi, Chris. How's it going? It's pretty good, yeah. Uh, I wanted to say before we started that I had some feedback that uh, we don't have particularly great banter on this podcast. I don't believe that. <laughs> what do you mean you don't believe in that? I, I think in our previous episodes, we've been somewhat cheesy. And, Is that uh, true? Yeah. I mean, I, personally, I think I think the banter is A+. plus. But The banter is my favorite part. I know. You know, you come for the banter and you stay for the elixir. Well, on that note, why don't we jump into the elixir? We should totally do that, yeah. So what's on your mind? Uh, so I've been thinking a lot about how we store state um, in Elixir applications and whether that should be something ephemeral or we should use be persisting that into something a bit more longer term. Um, so I thought that would be a pretty good topic for us to dive into today. Sounds good. There's really no way of getting around state, is there? Uh, I don't think so, no. Yeah. Although to answer that question, I think the first thing we have to break this down into is what kinds of state are we talking about storing? Mm-hmm. Um, there's short calculations, there's longer term, uh, persistent state that we want for the life of our application. Uh, there's things that live in just a session. There's things that might not live quite so long. There's things that expire like a cache or things that, um, become less interesting over time. Definitely. Um, I, and I mean, I think like for most of us developing, uh, kind of web applications these days, we're thinking about more like application state in its broader terms in, in the sense of, uh, I don't know, your the data that powers your application, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I think that's quite an interesting starting point. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of talk in the community about like, uh, you might not need a database, which is, you know, pretty interesting when we've come from these worlds of uh, frameworks that really tightly integrate with an ORM and uh, you use that to persist all of your data. It does sound fairly radical. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I get that. I totally get that because I think like when you think about the database and what you get, like it's really good at doing calculations and finding data for you. It's it's kind of designed to do that. So uh, if we started to move away from that kind of premise and think about uh, taking our application data and storing it in something like a process, you know, we lose some of those kind of advantages in how we access it, possibly. It's true. And not only is SQL a decades-old technology, but databases like Postgres have a lot built into them just beyond fetching data um, and storing it. And I was actually thinking a couple of days ago, um, I think after I read some blog posts, but the premise was, you know, if SQL has all of these uh, facilities built into it, like what is our application and how much of our application could we put into the database, which is like what we're talking about, but going the other direction where all of your logic is built into different SQL queries and you leverage the database to do all of that heavy lifting. And then your application is much more of a presentation layer. Have you ever worked with a system like that? I have not, honestly, since I've been doing web development, um, people are afraid of the database. Yeah, I mean, like we we use it to pretty much do a lot of a lot of things today, and I could I could see the argument of going like more in the direction of uh, putting more into the database. Like, 
you know, I think actually, uh, just a slight aside, but Ecto has been really good at doing that. I think uh, using a lot more of the constraints in the DB as uh, validations and then doing a lot more of the unique constraints at the DB level rather than doing it uh, through other selects at the application level um, is actually pretty good. So, I think so too. And I think a lot of us are living with the the legacy or the baggage of Rails, which tried to... Um be database agnostic. And it tried to put as much as possible into the application so that you could ignore um, what your data store was, which I always thought was a little silly because not once have I ever seen a company swap out one uh, relational data store for another. I was just about to say, you know, we're doing that data store swap right now, but it's also like not relational. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to go from... um, MySQL to Mongo or the other way around. Don't do that, folks. I've never seen someone go from um, MySQL to Postgres or Postgres to Maria. Um, And not only that, but be in a position where they've written a lot of um, database-centric queries. They're using some database-specific feature that might not be in the SQL standard or is just supported by this one database uh, that would not migrate over. Mm-hmm. Like that's just not a problem I've seen in the wild. Yeah, I mean, I I could see. I, I mean, I can always see the value in an ORM having that abstraction across databases. I think like being able to being able to have the flexibility to use something different is is great. Um, I think I'm with you in the. Uh, we often get wedded to particular features in databases, which mean that you essentially have a hard lock in anyway without a large rewrite of something. Um, I do, I do think like being really polyglot in how you think about data storage is is something that's interesting. Um, and I think with Elixir, uh, what we're talking about here is like, where should your state live? And I think what you touched on before was really interesting. Like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different kind of state in your system. Like what's to say that some of it could be ephemeral and live in a process that uh, could go away or maybe... Maybe you store a bunch of state in a lot of processes and then you back that up to a database. Which basically leaves your application state as another caching layer and all of the headaches that implies. Yeah, effectively, you're leaving everything in memory. Yeah, and now, yeah, it's, it's true. Like, um, I think like with the you might not need a database question is, is, is more of a like, how big is your data set and how complex are the number of servers that you're running and things like that. Because as soon as you start talking about stateful services and storing state within processes, and then you start thinking about sharding, and now you've got a really hard problem to solve. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I think like, I, I always think that the database is really useful. It's been developed to do a thing, which is store data, retrieve that data and be able to um, you know, aggregate and sum and do all those other things across that data. Uh, but I would say I do think there's I do think there's particular times where a database is overkill, right? Like, let's say I have an application that um, all it needs to do is fetch some data from I don't know maybe like uh, the train times every minute or something, and instead of persisting that because we only care about that minute's worth of data. We could just throw that in a process and then query off of that rather than using the DB. Mm -hmm. Um, I think another thing to consider is if you're facile with a database and migrations with Ecto are pretty straightforward, 
uh, it's just as easy to run those. And I think, um, sure, having a database is another component in your system. It's another thing to think about. It does add some, some complexity. Um, but if you're, if you're used to it and if it just kind of happens, then it doesn't seem to be that much extra baggage for the power it provides. Yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, I guess what I said before, like where you're, if you did start storing this data in a process and then you're like, oh shit, we need a lot more requests. Now you have to swap out that that layer for maybe a database. Yeah, and there's also the situation where you're prototyping some idea and you're not sure what the shape of the data is going to look like. Now, I will be honest, this does not happen to me that often. I don't know <laughs> if I just work on degenerate projects or what, but it I, I never feel like I'm backed into something because I've defined a DDL through my migrations and then I get stuck somewhere and it's too much of a hassle to roll back a migration or have something else that gets things how I want them uh, to look. I mean, you generally have a sense for what the relationships of these things is going to be. And if there is any question, then it's fairly simple with later versions of Postgres you might be able to tell I'm a fanboy of this technology. <laughs> but you just put a JSONB column at the end and drop everything in there. And then you can pull things into it or out of it as you need. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm with you there as well. Like, I think like having that flexibility now where you can store like maps and everything in your, in your database like that, it becomes really simple um, and really easy to do. I, I mean, I've heard, I've heard someone say to me before where it's like, I don't want to use a relational database because migrations are slow and they and it means I have to think about a lot of stuff. And it's like, really, really at this point, it's so simple to do migrations. But I I do think though that that is not necessarily the reason why you might consider not using a database per se. Um, I do think something that's really interesting in Elixir and especially in uh, from Erlang as well is this this idea of the actor model. Um, and the idea that you would have many processes and each process represents a particular uh, piece of data or piece of state. And then to interact with that, you just send that process a message. Um, I think there was a quote uh, from somewhere where um, Joe Armstrong of Erlang, uh, Erlang authorship fame um, actually said about if he rewrote Twitter, they might consider using a bunch of processes to do that. You know, In that case... When you say you have one process for each piece of piece of data was what you said? I think in that case, it would be, let's just take the Twitter example and run with it. I think it would be um, a process per user. And then on that process, you would have uh, a list of tweets per user. So then the question is, what gets their own process? Does each user get their own process? Does each tweet get its own process? How do you then link um, user processes with tweet processes? How do you define relationships with uh, a user and their followers? Yeah. Where does it end? Or where do you draw the limits around what goes in which process? Right. I, I mean, let's, let's just run with the idea that you have uh, a single user as a single process, right? And then let's let's imagine that you have a data structure on there that represents a list of tweets that, you've, uh, that that user has posted. Um, and then the idea of the actor model then is that, you know, that that piece of state is encapsulated and it exists in its own process. And now if I want to say, give me all the tweets for that user, I send that process a message and get all of those tweets back, right? And then things like the follower graph, I'd imagine that would just be um, probably PIDs to other processes, just references to say like, 
okay, this user is connected to all of these ones. I mean, like, again, like if you start building systems like that, it's, it's incredibly elegant to think about state and data and all of these things colliding and living on their own. Um, I do think it introduces a lot of complexity into your system when you start thinking about like, okay, what do I do about uh, if let's say that machine like randomly goes off, off offline, right? What, what happens there? Do I lose all of those tweets? Are we talking about some kind of replication where um, we're replicating that data set across other machines? Um, are we, you know, th- I think there's a lot to consider there when we're like, when we're thinking about some of these stateful ideas. Yeah. And honestly, this is where the idea falls flat for me. And um, we may, we probably should have said this earlier, but the the idea of building your application without a database um, seems to come from the Erlang world where so much technology is built into the Erlang VM that programmers have gotten by for a while without using anything else. And so there have been some blog posts around, oh, we'll just start with uh, a gen server. That's called a user service. And a user signs up and then you create this user struct and then you drop it into the gen server state and uh, then it's always there. And those of us coming from um, other web backgrounds who are used to uh, a LAMP stack or something with a relational data store underneath would say, well, what happens when you turn off the system? All the stuff goes away. And uh, no one really has an answer for that. They always focus on, look, you can store this stuff in memory. And it's like, great, but memory is ephemeral and right. it can go away. And I guess their answer is, well, the system's not designed to be turned off. Erlang systems are designed to be hot upgraded, not power cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, or I mean, there are ways to interject persistence into that as well, right? Like we could think about um, every time a request comes in, we could also keep it in that cache, which is effectively the process, and then uh, back it up to a system like DB somewhere else as well, right? Do another write at the same time. Yeah, and that's my main issue with it is as soon as you get to like, oh, well, we'll just back it up somewhere then it's a caching layer. You built a caching yeah. layer and you have to deal with, okay, when do we store it in this in this persistent storage somewhere? When do we rehydrate it? How do we rehydrate it when the system comes, comes back online? And uh, that's great. I mean, caching layers are super useful and they're also a big pain in the ass. So I don't, that to me is not a great story. Right. And now we're talking about trade-offs of like, you know, what kind of data is it? How fast does it need to be accessed? Do you do you need to keep the entire data set in memory for your particular use case, right? Um, something that, uh, from my experience of working with this, uh, so for Carver Grill, for instance, we we kept all of the time slots for, for a store. Um, sorry, I should actually back up. So Carver Grill was um, a fast, casual restaurant chain uh, and they basically, it's, a, it's an online ordering system that we had built. Uh, and what that does is allow you to basically say, I want to book a time slot to, to have an order made. And what we did, because we knew there'd be a lot, of, uh, a lot of access to those time slots, is we kept all of those in memory. But we backed it all up to, to a database the whole time. So when the system came online, it read the state from the DB and hydrated itself into the process. Um, and then similarly, like writes were done to the DB. So the DB was a source of absolute truth. But we we kept this really fast kind of layer, which is, yes, effectively a cache, um, so that we could, you know, maintain these really high response times when you're doing this operation where you need to see like 
give me the list of time slots that are available for this store. Totally. And I think that's a great use case for this sort of thing and for a cache in general. The question is, when you're designing your system from the ground up, I wouldn't start with a caching layer. No, well, it and again, like it, you might have that need, right? Like you might be designing like super high throughput uh, trading systems or something, right? Where like so, if you're designing super high throughput trading systems and you're listening to this podcast, please raise your hand. <laughs> um, yeah, I like to hope there's, uh, you know, Elixir is a great technology for doing some of these things, right? Not, I don't think like all problems are just. Um, a database where you're fetching all the data and you're stitching a load of tables together. Although you could probably fit a lot of things into that pattern, let's be honest. And I think uh, you've touched on a larger issue, which is that those of us that have grown up with these tools at our disposal have molded our thinking to what um, tools we have available to solve problems, which means we approach most problems from this mindset. And I think that's... um, that's just one of the difficult things about getting older is it can be difficult to um, apprehend new ideas and have new ways of thinking about things. Of course, these Erlangers have been chilling on this for a couple of decades. Yeah, I mean, I do like I keep coming back to in my mind that the web is inherently stateless, right? Like, so does it make sense to have a stateful service behind it? Or does it make sense to hydrate that state each time that you make a request, you know? Well, web requests are stateless. When you think yes. about a web application, that is going to be inherently stateful at some point. Right. And I guess that's the argument of like, let's say, I don't know. Let, I, I do. I like this example as well, where let's say that we have um, an e-commerce site. And let's say that we're building in-progress orders. Um, so the client maybe makes requests to the server every time you add to the cart. But that that order is kind of ephemeral. So that could be held uh, I don't know, maybe in a process, right? And then at the point of when you go to the checkout, maybe you move that order into a more of a permanent storage state so we could have this like best of both worlds there. That makes sense because if you have something like a shopping cart, which gets abandoned after some amount of time, I don't think you want a bunch of orphaned or abandoned records in your database sitting around. Yeah, right, exactly. Or, or maybe you do because you want to send some emails out. It's... It's such a, it depends. It's, yeah, it's one of those things that's, it's so hard to point a concrete, like, yes, you should do this or yes, you should do this, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I I think like, um, you know, what you said before of like, you start with a DB and you're probably going to be okay, right? Like as long as you make the right DB choice. Um, so, you know, all those people out there tra- making their choice, I think it's probably a relational DB, just saying. Don't use Mongo. I, I didn't want to go that far, Desmond, but you know, you said podcast? it, not me. <laughs> yeah. If there's anyone there who works at Mongo, uh, we're sorry. But I think your your point is well taken that not every uh, application works on relational data. You could have time series data. You could have, um, I don't know, other kinds of data. Yeah, which is like, I think that's where it's really interesting to think about like polyglot kind of data stores in your application, right? Like not everything is a great fit for a, for a one-size-fits-all relational DB, mm-hmm. like a Postgres or a MySQL. Like sometimes you need a Cassandra or a, like an Influx DB or you know a Rocks DB or one of those particular um, databases that makes different trade-offs in the in its in its uh, design. Absolutely. And another nice thing about storing um, 
terms in memory is that Erlang is built to just keep this stuff around. So you don't have to worry about deserialization, serialization. Uh, is this time being co- coerced into a timestamp? Is it being turned into a string that then needs to be parsed later? Uh, if you just have some Erlang struct, you drop it in your gen server, you drop it in ETS table, and it's just there. And when you want it again, it's just there. And that's very cool. Definitely. Um, so for everyone who doesn't know out there, at or ETS um, is Erlang Term Storage. So it's an in-memory data store that's basically a key value store. Um, but that key can be any Erlang term and subsequently can be a lot of Elixir kind of uh, terms as well, anything that can be converted, which is effectively everything. Um, so it basically means that you can store that key as whatever you want, right? Like I've stored a bunch of tuples in there before or, um, you know, you could store date times or whatever. And then you have the ability to query that. Um, and ETS is, ETS is very, very cool. It's, it's basically like a, a really awesome, like Erlang specialized Redis, I guess you could think of it like. Um, I mean, it's it's a very powerful tool for storing a lot of this data um, in memory again. So it's it's ephemeral. The system goes down. You're going to lose that uh, unless you use something that's disbacked. And there's a, ver- a variety of apps called debts which has that disbacking for you. Um, I haven't used that. Uh, I, I'm fairly familiar with apps. And if you're using Phoenix today, you you know. Under the hood, Phoenix is also using ETS as well. And there's another uh, piece of technology called Amnesia. I think it's called Amnesia. It's spelled without the A. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and this is, it's kind of a relational database that's built into the Erlang VM, um, which does have persistence. And this is what RabbitMQ uses under the hood to store messages that have come in if you've marked them as persistent. Yeah, and um, Amnesia is distributed as well, right? So all of your nodes that are connected up are going to get the same data. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so I mean, you know, and what we're talking about here, I think this is like such a cool part of Erlang that I always get really excited about, which is like, you know, there's no dependencies that's in the libraries of of the programming language, mm-hmm. which is kind of amazing. Yeah, it's funny. I remember there's a chart somewhere saying, here's your classic setup where you're, web server is written in this language and your caching layer is memcached and your data store is Postgres. And then you have something else somewhere. And then it's, uh, oh, uh, reverse proxy for Nginx. Um, and then it's like, or you could use Erlang for all of these things because they're all built yeah. into the Erlang VM. Yeah, with the exceptionally large caveat of like, oh, now you've got to think about distribution of that data and things across nodes and I, I think so much of this is so simple when you think about it on running on one machine. Um, but like most distributed system problems, it gets a lot harder when you add lots more kind of machines to that, right? Yeah, it's true. And I, I like, so for us, like uh, we were making the decision about our caching layer um, and we're running many Docker containers that aren't connected together right now because um, we haven't figured that side of things out still. Um, but you know, we opted for using memcache because it's distributed. We only like it's a service that we can talk to across all of those machines and retrieve the same result, rather than thinking about oh, uh, if we had an X table on each one, now we have to distribute that cache, or everything has a different set of caches. Well, is memcache distributed, or is it decentralized, separate from your application? 
Sorry, you're you're right there. Thank you. Uh, it's decentralized, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you could just as easily say instead of memcached, we have another application that's written in Erlang that just has... Yeah, completely. It's true. We could, we could have had a separate server that acts purely as an et store or something like that, right? And then contact it like that. But um, I, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many decisions that you have to make there. And like using that off the shelf piece of tech that we know works was not a bad thing for us to do as well. Sure. So is there anything we can say about storing state in your applications? Anything we can definitively summarize or some use cases that we can agree on that this is a great time to to do this or not yeah. to do that? Uh, any listeners who've uh, listened to any of our podcasts right now probably realize that we'd never really come to a conclusion. <laughs> we just ramble around the subject for some given amount of time. And then talk about Star Trek. Yeah, or not, <laughs> as the case may have been for three podcasts. So um, I... I think the conclusion is, you know, a database is not a bad starting point for for a lot of applications. Um, I do think if you're building something simple and you want to play around with like keeping state and processes and it's okay if that stuff goes away or your data set size is reasonable and fits in memory, um, then yeah, go ahead, put it in et, put it in a, put it in a process, try out some of these models. I I personally think it's really interesting to think of systems in in terms of the actor model. Um, it's a really great thought exercise, and it's 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 very true to like an OO model if you've uh, if you've done a lot of that kind of style of programming previously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I had um, ephemeral data that looked like a session, I would probably just leave it in memory. Um, in my Gen servers, I usually put. Uh, I guess you would call it like debugging information in the state. Something like, when was the last time? What was the last command this thing received? Um, what's the next thing it's expecting to do if it's like a scheduled uh, job? Yeah, just kind of debugging info about what it's been doing and then what was the last thing it did and then what that looks like in case I have to connect to the system and try to troubleshoot, oh, something's gone wrong with this service or this user didn't get what they were expecting. Uh, that helps me for forensic analysis. Um, it's not application critical data, but it is nice to have there. And that's not something that I would like spin up a database table for. Wouldn't you want to put that in a log file? You could put that Maybe. in a log file. I don't know. But then, then you'd have to print your log file in some format that made it easier to parse later. And I know that Different tools have facilities for parsing out your log files if you add some keys to it. Um, yeah. But it it doesn't feel that important um, for the right. amount of work I would have to do to get the data out of it when generally it's like something went wrong with this one thing. Um, so mm-hmm. let me look at this one thing instead of like filter some events out of a fire hose. Right. Yeah, I, I can see... I, th- I think like there are definitely situations where like keeping things in in memory is is fine, right? Like I th- I think though um, I don't know for everyone who's out there building Elixir applications today, I, I think like sticking with somewhat what you know is okay as well, right? Like just because you hear these people out there saying like, oh, you might not need a database, or do you really need a database to do this? It's like you know. It, if your if your team is very used to running Postgres, do it. You know, if you're doing something that's mission critical and that's what you need to do, do it. If 
if there's a particular like hobby project that doesn't require it, then maybe that's a good reason to play around with some of these different things. I mean, just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Cool. Well, um, I, I don't know if we quite put a lid on that, but like, I think that we that was a pretty okay overview. So at this point, I think we can invite our listeners, particularly those listeners who are building high-performance trading applications, uh, to feel free to send us in your use cases about how maybe you're just keeping state in the application and that's fine and it works well for you. Uh, we'd love to hear about that. I think other people in the community would also like to hear about that. Definitely. Yeah, and um, if you want to do that, uh, we have a GitHub repository uh, that's at Elixir Talk on GitHub and it's slash Elixir Talk. And if you open up an issue on there, um, yeah, we'll definitely try and include that in one of the next shows. We're, we're currently like getting through some of our backlog of um, some other things that we wanted to talk about. And then, yeah, we'd love to love to kind of tackle some of your questions as well. Yeah, anything uh, about the ecosystem, any other design questions that you have or just uh, what's happening right now? Feel free to open up an issue and ask us. Desmond, I have a question for you. What's that, Chris? What's your favorite Star Trek episode and why? There's only one answer to this question. I know. It's a trick question. <laughs> um, my favorite episode is uh, an episode from the, I think it's the fifth season called um, The Inner Light. And... Uh, I actually, I don't want to give this away for those users that haven't seen it, but uh, we'll leave this as homework and then I can talk about it next week. If anyone is interested, go watch the episode. Um, it's on Amazon Prime where I'm sure you can find Star Trek. It's called The Inner Light. And um, we will discuss uh, our review of that next week along with other Elixir questions you might have. Yeah, and uh, that is in Star Trek The Next Generation, if uh, anyone didn't catch that as right. well. so, And if you haven't watched that, what what, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> We could just turn this into a Star Trek podcast. I know. I feel like that's our next step. So before we go, I want to make a quick announcement. Um, we're having an MPEX conference in Los Angeles, uh, which we mentioned Ooh. before. But the conference is happening on Saturday, February 10th, 2018. Uh, if you're in Los Angeles... Definitely come check that out. And if you're in the area, uh, it's also going to be a great a great time. One day, single track uh, conference, a lot like the New York MPEX. Uh, we found a great venue. And our CFP is now open. And it's open until December 15th. So uh, we would love to hear your talk submissions. We would love to um, have you at the conference. And uh, if you just want to see what the rest of us have to say, tickets go on sale December 1st. So be sure to check that out. A link to MPEX will be in the show notes, but it's uh, HTTP MPEX.co. Awesome. Yeah. You know what? LA in February sounds very appealing to a New Yorker. So I think I'm going to apply if you'll have me. Sounds great. I'm, I mean, there's obviously a decision process there. Well, our decision, our, our talk selection is anonymous. So if you submit some bogus talk, we won't know. I'll try and not make it bogus. Thanks, Desmond. <laughs> oh, and, and actually on that note as well, uh, for, for those people who've been to MPEX in New York, uh, we'll be hosting another conference in May. Um, dates to be announced, but we'll be opening up our CFP sometime in January as well. So really excited about hosting everyone again and uh, having another awesome New York kind of themed conference. Cool. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. This has been another episode of Elixir Talk. 
My name is Desmond Bowie. And I'm Chris Bell. And uh, we will see you next time. Keep elixiring. <laughs> <laughs>